Good morning. Uh, go ahead and have a seat. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 2. Uh, just curious, how many of you read what we're going to be going over in chapter or in chapel, um, like last night, maybe throughout the week, or is it kind of something that Wednesday you just open it up and you look at it? Do you, does anyone read much studying it? Um, probably, I would I would say I'm kind of guilty of the same thing in that unless you're speaking at chapel, you tend to study a lot more. And uh, there's great benefit. And so I would just encourage you before we're heading into a passage to read, uh, study it, meditate on it. Um, because at first glance, sometimes we don't, we don't understand. Um, I'm thankful for the people who have spoke uh, up to this point, uh, particularly last week, uh, Pastor Childs. And what we're going to do is we're going to overlap just a little bit of what he said because... Um, what he was preaching from in 14 through 20 uh, has a lot to do with what I've been assigned in 21 through 26, okay? Um, I, I want to start with just, I don't know, maybe it's helpful, maybe it's not. Um, just a, a quick little analogy or story maybe, because um, I think it is similar to how this passage um, can affect us. Uh, when I was in high school, um, I played football for a uh, really successful coach. He was way successful before I got in school, and he was successful after. So it wasn't, you know, um, wasn't an isolated um, success. But our uh, team was doing pretty well, and it was my junior year. And I think we were maybe I don't know seven and zero, eight and zero, and things were going pretty well. And uh, we had just beaten a team pretty handily, and uh, we were practicing for an upcoming game, and uh, our coach, <laughs> it was one of the hardest practices I've ever been in, and essentially what his message was is, you guys think you're pretty good, but you're not. You're making lots of mistakes, and those mistakes... Um, you don't realize how serious they are. You don't understand that if your goal is to continue on and to be successful and maybe compete for a state championship, uh, you, you've got to get a lot more disciplined. You've got to get better. You've got to stop making these same mistakes. And it was kind of uh, insulting because in our minds, coach, what more do you want? We've won all our games. We've won most of them pretty handily. And, and he was exactly right. We needed a little bit of a wake-up call. And uh, it was a brutal practice, lots of running, lots of discipline. Anytime we made a mistake, he was calling us out on that. And, and as I look back, I'm very thankful because he was exactly right. We had a misconception in our minds of who we were, how good we were. And what he did is he brought us some reality. And uh, I would argue this passage that we're going to look at might make some of you mad. It might make some of you confused. 
But I would argue that James, as he is teaching to these people who have come out of Judaism to Christianity, this is a pastoral kindness. He's telling something to them that they really need to know. And his fear is they don't understand it. They don't really know it. They think they do. They think they're good shape. But he's going to bring some very um, plain examples in that help illustrate it. So we're going to try to do that today. Um, if I were to ask you, tell me one of the most terrifying truths in all of Scripture, what would come to your mind? Just think about that. What's the most terrifying truth in all of Scripture? And you might be surprised, but I think one of the most terrifying is the fact that God is good. And some of you might be like, Mr. O, that's, that's not terrifying. <laughs> I think if you really understand the essence of our sinful condition, it is terrifying because I'm not good. You're not good. Uh, scripture tells us in many times that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So the fact that God is good uh, really should cause us to shudder. So the question is, how can sinful man ever be in harmony with a holy God? Thank you for the song. It's my grandson's favorite song. He sings it with his microphone. Not exactly on tune all the time, but he sings it with a lot of zeal. Only a holy God. And um, our problem is, I need to be declared righteous. But I'm not righteous. You need to be clear, declared justified. But you're, you're not. And that's, that's a problem. Jesus came, and He spoke these words in Mark 1. He said, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And I'm guessing most of you, that's not new information. But I do want you to think about something for just a moment. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? The Old Testament Hebrew translation of believe says to stand firm to trust, to be sure or certain of something. Sometimes in Christian language we will say, well, to believe means to have faith. What does that mean? What does it mean to have faith? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So once again, I ask the question, how can you hope in something you've never seen? I've never seen God in bodily form. How can I know that there really is a God? How can I really know that there is the promise of a new heaven and a new earth? Because I know based on my condition, um, I don't 
have any part of a kingdom of righteousness and holiness on my own merit. As we get into James chapter 2, he's going to deal with some of these questions. And James, he says something pretty bold. And actually, if you remember last week, Pastor Childs made reference to it. But the reformer Martin Luther, he didn't understand this for a time. And he said, this is an epistle of straw. You know what? It shouldn't even be in the Bible. He later recanted of that statement, but that's how fired up he got when he saw this. And I think you'll see why here in just a second. But James says, you can believe, you can have a faith that does not save. He says, you can have a faith, you can have a belief that does not save. And that makes a lot of people really nervous. It's like, well, what do you mean, Mr. O? I, I, I believe. I have faith. And James says, examine that. Let's look at it. And this is what he says. We're going to start in verse 14. So with your eyes on the, the Scriptures, James asks this question. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Okay, so far that's review. That's where we were last week. So without taking a lot of time, I just want to look at a couple of things. Remember what we were taught last week is that faith that is dead you could call it a nominal faith, a faith that's in name only. Sometimes Mr. Falk uses the expression going through the motions. James says, you can describe it. There's an empty confession. Dead faith in the life of someone who is claiming that is not interested in holiness. They're not interested in purity. They really don't love God, they don't love His Word, and they do not have any desire for righteousness. We're living in a time right now when I'm seeing it, I think, everywhere, that people are more interested in what they can see on their phone. That's the only thing they really feel comfortable with is scrolling through social media. And um, my wife and I were at a restaurant last night, and it was almost like we were talking to non-humans. They were trying to interact with us, but they were so unable to interact with human beings. They were socially so awkward, and it was like, I don't know what this person even, how they can even function in a society. 
And my fear is they just want to know what reality is according to TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram. And they have to live in that world. They can't live in any other world. And it's a false reality. Verse 15 and 16. He says, dead faith has false compassion. You really don't care about other people. You might say, hey, sorry you don't have any food. Sorry you don't have any, anything to drink. I uh, hope that works out for you. But, but you really don't care. Dead faith, 17 and 18. It says that you may have orthodox beliefs. Now, help me out here. Who can tell me? Ortho. That form of the word means what? Anybody ever had orthodontic work done? Unfortunately, some of you have had orthopedic work done. So ortho means straight. Straighten those crooked teeth. You can make sure that shoulder works again. That knee now functions. So ortho would be straight or right. Docs would be opinion or praise. In other words, you know a lot of stuff. And I was just walking over from the high school. And um, I was just thinking about from whatever, 1959 or whenever NC began. Think about how much work like labor, and how much money has been spent in the last 50 plus years because they want you to have orthodox teaching. There are people who have given their life to this place because they really think that having orthodox teaching is, is important. And I agree. We want to stand on truth. But James says, you can have orthodox beliefs because he says even demons do. Demons believe in God. Remember Pastor Childs last week said uh, as Jesus was interacting with a demon-possessed man, the demon spoke and says, why are you harassing us before the appointed time? So they have a Christology. They have a theology. They have a eschatology. So it's not about just orthodox beliefs. Because James says you can have a dead faith and still know a lot of stuff. You can know the books of the Bible. You can quote John 3.16. And so the tension's building here. It's like, wait a minute. That's, that's kind of what I'm banking on. And he says, no, that's, that's dead faith. In verse 20, he says, you fool. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? And so then what he's going to do is he's going to illustrate. So here we are. New material for today. Let's read 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, reading that passage, you can probably see why Luther got a little fired up. One of the things that I read and listened to in preparation was one theologian who said many people read this and they think that Paul, the Apostle Paul, and James are having this battle. And Paul says, no, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And you might be nodding in, in, in your spirit saying, like, yeah, that's right. And then James, he just says that Abraham believed and he was justified by his works. And if you've been in evangelical circles very long, we are told, oh, no, no, we are not justified by our works. No flesh will glory in the presence of God. So are they having a fight? Are they having a, a conflict? The late R.C. Sproul, he gave an illustration, and it made so much sense. And I wish I could illustrate it. I wish I knew how to draw. I wish I had some way to, to show you, but I'll do the best I can. He said, they're, they're not having an argument. They're both defending biblical doctrine. And it's almost as if, if you can imagine, the glorious gospel is right here. And on one side, Paul is defending people who say, I'm a good guy. I do lots of good stuff. I go to church. I have all kinds of rituals that I take part in. And Paul is defending the Gospel saying, essentially to the rich young ruler, your works in and of themselves do not gain you righteousness. Your works in front of a holy God are like filthy rags. He says, by grace, through faith, are you saved. He's defending against someone who says, I do a lot of good stuff. But over here, with his back defending the Gospel, James is saying to a whole group of people. And these people are saying, yeah, I believe. Yep, I'm good. I believe all this stuff. So yeah, I have a living faith. And James is essentially saying, it sure doesn't look like your faith's alive. He says, what good is your quote-unquote faith if it has no life to it, if it has no response, if it has no works? There is no compassion. And so if you remember, one of the first things we saw in James was the idea, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And James is saying, if you have dead faith, all you're going to do when you face trials is complain. And say, so this isn't fair. I don't deserve this. But he says, living faith says, God is good. I trust Him. And I am going to consider this a challenge for me to grow deeper in my commitment, my trust, because what God says, He will do. The 
kind of ironic thing is both Paul and James use the same guy and the same word. They say Abraham was justified. And so let's look at it here real quick. Abraham, Paul's evidence. Abraham was promised that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the heaven, yet he and his wife Sarah, or Sarai, depending on when you read it, they were childless. This used to bother me. Because if you know anything about Abraham, and if you say, this guy could never be justified by his works, because he's got some pretty dark stuff. <laughs> he, he tells people in Egypt that my wife, yeah, she's not really my wife, she's my sister. Because he's afraid of what they might do to him or to her. And later on, when he knows that God has promised that his offspring will be like the sand of the seashore, the only problem is he didn't have any kids. His wife's barren. She can't have a baby. So then he commits adultery with her handmaid, Hagar. So to think that, oh man, Abraham, he was such a, a great guy. No, he, he was a sinful man, but we do see he believed God. And by believing what God had revealed, God accounted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15.6 says this, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. If you think about what Abraham had available to him, he's living in a pagan land and God tells him, leave that land, leave your family. I am going to establish your offspring and you're going to be the father of a multitude. And Abraham says, I believe you. I'm going. And he goes. So his, his obedience was not perfect. But he believed what God said. So, I, I have to ask you guys a question. Do you believe what God has said? And do you obey it? Because really that's what we're getting at is, do you have living faith? And I'll, I'll just th throw a couple of things. Here's the weird thing. I can't see your faith. I have no idea what you guys believe. Nor can you see mine. But God can. So, yesterday morning, we had our assembly in the hallway. Mr. Falk read from Revelation 22. We sang a song repeating an attribute of God's nature. Holy, holy, holy. And as I looked at the student body, there were people holding a piece of paper. Looked like they were bored out of their mind. Some were not saying anything and some were like, holy, holy. I don't know what you believe. Maybe you were tired. Maybe uh, you really weren't listening. But if you think about it, if we're talking about the majesty of the God who created everything around us, general revelation speaks of His majesty. And what He has revealed in His special revelation, in His Word. And sometimes by our actions, we say, you know what, I'm really not that impressed, God. It's really not that big of a deal. Whew. 
Wow. That's pretty heavy. So, as he uses this example of Abraham, Abraham believed him. James uses the same example. Because later on, after the Lord has given Abraham a son, Isaac, he's probably in his teens, maybe early 20s, we don't know for sure. But he says, okay, God, you promised me a son, and at 100, my wife had a baby. That's pretty unusual. But James says, look, look what Abraham did. In Genesis 22, 9 through 12, it says, When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built there an altar, arranged wood on it, bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld me from your son, your only son. James is saying that's living faith. Can you, can you imagine how much Abraham would treasure his only son from his wife? And he says, but Lord, whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. Even if it didn't even seem to make sense to him at the time. And so Abraham was justified or vindicated before other men because they saw that his actions proved the evidence of what he believed. So the question that James is trying to approach what good is it if someone says they have faith but have not works? Millions of people had made professions of faith and have not demonstrated the reality of the faith they profess. So ultimately, I hope this is a benefit to you, but this has to be something I have to look at myself. And sometimes people think, oh, well, you're an old guy. Uh, th this isn't a concern for you. Do you know how many people my age have appeared to believe they've kind of done the church thing they might have even had you know positions of leadership and all of a sudden they just bail and say i don't believe this anymore i actually we took students to uh, a pastor in the eastern part of the country and uh it was it was a huge church i listened to him preach some of you know who this guy is and i'm not here to throw anyone under the bus because I don't know how the Lord's going to continue to work. But basically what he did is he went from being a senior pastor at a large church in Maryland and he said, you know what, honey, I don't love you anymore. And so he divorced his wife. He left his children. He told the people of the church, I don't believe the Bible's true. And he moved across the country and I don't know where he's at today. And so may the Lord have mercy and draw him. I don't, I don't know what the Lord's doing with that. But he played the part. He really looked like he had a living faith. He was preaching, for goodness gracious. He was standing up doing this kind of thing week after week. He was writing books. And then he said, yeah, you know what? I don't believe any of this stuff. 
That's heartbreaking. So it's important for us to look at what James is, is teaching here. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 15. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. As I said before, we can't see someone's faith. The only assessment we can make looking at another person is the fruit of their life. The only problem is sometimes we become very good at producing what is fake fruit. Strangely enough, if you've grown up kind of like I did, going to church, parents who professed faith in Christ, um, sometimes you have to you have to pretend to be something that you're really not. But it always will come to pass. People will reveal. And so I, I think about the number of students who've gone through a school trying to teach the reality of living faith, trying to teach orthodoxy, right thinking, right understanding of God. And I think it was Mr. Sanborn who said, you know, usually by about the second year of college, you have a pretty good idea of what people truly believe. Thanks, Mitt. Check, check. There we go. Thank you. Okay, so as we get ready to finish here, there's an admonition in Matthew 7. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. The only kind of faith that saves is living faith, not a dead faith. And living faith is going to be manifested by works of righteousness. As you look at the rest of the passage, he uses another example. And I would not have chosen this example. <laughs> Rahab. If you know anything about Old Testament, Rahab is a prostitute. She lives in the city of Jericho. But she has heard. She has heard what God has done. And she says, our hearts melt because we know that your God has freed you from the Egyptians. He's part of the Red Sea. And we know you're going to take this land. And so what she does is she hides two spies who are scouting the town. And she said, I will help you get away safely. But when you come back to take this town, please spare my family. 
I want to be with my family. We want to be with people who serve a living God. She probably did not have great theology coming from a pagan town running a brothel. But what she did is she believed. And she obeyed. And so as you read here, it describes Rahab in the same way. Verse 25, Rahab the prostitute was justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. There's one last example. It's in verse 26. And maybe it's as clear as any. But it says this, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As you look at this example, he describes something that most of us can understand. If you've ever been to a funeral, you know exactly what a corpse looks like. I have a relative who is a mortician. And so one of the things he has to do is try to present the corpse as naturally as he possibly can. And so they put makeup on the corpse. They sew lips shut. They comb their hair. They fix their hair. They put on a suit, dress, something. A lot of times they'll put eyeglasses on. When my dad passed away, he always wore glasses. And so in the casket, it looked funny for him to not have his glasses on, so they put glasses on him. That's really kind of strange. Putting glasses, eyeglasses, on a corpse. Because the one thing we all know about a corpse, there's no movement, there's no action, there's no breath. It's dead. And so what he says, if you understand that, you can dress it up, you can put lipstick on a corpse, you can put makeup on, it's still dead. And so he says, if you understand that, that's exactly what faith without works is like. It's dead. So this is not a new teaching. This is not contradictory. Why was Abraham justified before God? Because he believed. He believed what God said, and he obeyed it. Rahab, she believed God, and she obeyed it. Some of you know the story of Zacchaeus. I think, I think he's another great example. He's a tax collector in Jericho, same town where Rahab was. And Jesus walks by. He's a short guy. He can't see him, so he gets in a tree, and he says, come down because I'm going to your house today. We don't really know what his conversion was like. We just know this, that as Jesus goes to his house, a guy who was known as a scoundrel of a tax collector, he says, today I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll pay him back four times. And Jesus chuckles and says, salvation has come to this house today. In other words, he believed, and there was action there was an effect. Maybe the best way to summarize 
is Ephesians 2. Many of us know 8 and 9, but I think it's important to finish with verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved because we did good works. Because we're saved, good works are a natural outpouring of living faith. So as you guys get ready to go to your groups, two questions, and I'm sure there's more that will come up, but what are some differences, according to our passage, between genuine, saving, living faith and dead faith? What are some differences, according to Scripture, between living faith and dead faith? And one last question, 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul exhorts us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. How can James 2 help us do that? How does James 2 help us examine? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to tell us the truth, that you are God and there is no other. You are holy and we are sinful. And our only hope of redemption is through Christ and through obedience and believing that what you say you will do and what you have done is true. So help us to walk in your ways, increase our faith, help us to repent of sin for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, you are free to go to your groups now.